BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The enemy is you. This Ben Jarofsky show, Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, and the Chicago Reader. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarowski Show as I speak. It's Friday, February 19th, 2021. The voice you heard at the outset, of course, was Governor J.B. Pritzker. Oh, I love playing that uh, bit. It has absolutely nothing to do with what we're going to talk about, but I just love hearing that bit anyway. All right. Uh, I'm going to read, as I always do with a bonus interview, the headline in the paper of the day so you know hmm, what was going on. But this particular headline will really tie in well with what I'm going to be discussing with my distinguished guests who's waiting for me to introduce them. So I'll now read the headline in the newspaper, today's New York Times. Here we go. Texans facing new crisis. Too little drinkable water. Power flickers back, but frozen pipes break and treatment plants are crippled. It's a power crisis in the state of Texas. And just below that, bolting to Cancun, Cruz finds more heat than he expected. Oh, a little clever headline in the uh, New York. How about the New York Times getting so punny? Ted Cruz, of course, Senator Ted Cruz, Republican senator of Texas, thought, hey, I got a great idea. Everybody's freezing. I'll go to Cancun. And then the proverbial shit hits the proverbial fan, and he's trying to figure out what to do. Anyway, uh, all this Texas stuff is... Really apropos for my distinguished guests. So as I do with all distinguished guests, I'll ask you to introduce yourself. Introduce yourself, distinguished guests. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me again. Uh, Jason Lee. I'm a uh, political consultant uh, who's worked a lot of, with a lot of organizations in Illinois and my home state of Texas, mostly organized labor, progressive organizations like uh, United Working Family, Elizabeth Warren, a uh, number of congressional races around the country. So basically, I do politics. He's a political junkie, ladies and gentlemen. He was on the show once before. It was a very popular interview. I brought him back. I had no idea uh, when I reached out to Jason that Texas would be in the news. And it's just uh, sort of uh, appropriate uh, that Jason would be uh, on my show because, uh, as he said, he is from Texas. Talk a little bit about Jason, where you grew up. Uh, and what Texas politics is to you before I start asking you some more specific questions about the madness in Texas right now. Ah, man, that's a good, that's a good question. What politics means to me. So I grew up in Houston, uh, which is, uh, the largest city in Texas, uh, in the largest County, which is Harris County. Uh, for most of my life, uh, it's been a blue city, uh, over the last 10 years, it's become a blue County. Uh, and the state has become more blue. Um, politics was in the early part of my life. It was a lot more, uh, you know, even Democrats who could win statewide. I don't know. Some of you probably remember 
Governor Ann Richardson, uh, who, 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 who won and was governor before George W. Bush, obviously, who became president. Uh, but then once George W. won, it became red for a long time, uh, and Democrats were kind of in the wilderness. Uh, but over the last couple of cycles, Democrats have been making a comeback. Uh, most of you know Beto, Beto O'Rourke and how close he got running for Senate. Uh, so there's a lot of energy and excitement uh, in Texas uh, about uh, politically now that wasn't always there. So it's, it's an exciting time. All right. So I'm following what's going on in Texas, a serious crisis. Uh, there's no electricity. Uh, water pipes are bursting. People don't have heat. They don't have water. It's utter madness. Uh, I would think that the governor of the state would show empathy We'll, we'll hold off on Cruz. We'll deal with Abbott first, the governor. We'll show empathy, empathy for the people uh, of his state who are under siege. Instead, he goes on Fox TV and wages war against the Green New Deal. And if he could, he would have been picking on uh, AOC as somehow or other it was her fault. Uh, please explain, uh, Jason, to people who are not from Texas, the instincts of a Republican governor of Texas to go hard against something that doesn't even exist right now, the Green New Deal. Go ahead. Yeah, so I think, you know, part of it has to do with a kind of segmented media landscape. So when you're speaking to Fox News, you know, you're speaking to a partisan audience um, and you want to test messaging that you think uh, will kind of galvanize or rile up your base. And you're going to have a different narrative when you're speaking to local broadcasts in the state around, you know, crisis and what people need to do to stay safe and what you're doing to address the problem. Um, over the last, in the last, uh, you know, in the presidential cycle, there was a lot of uh, excitement around Texas, some uh, frontline congressional races across the state, um, also the statewide uh, Senate race. And the Republicans ended up, I mean, Democrats made gains relative to 2016, but the Republicans held up pretty well. And one of the things they attribute their victory to is the way that they were able to define Democrats as socialists as outside the mainstream. So there was a lot of messaging around socialism, a lot of messaging around defunding the police uh, and kind of tying certain Democratic candidates to that. And so I think that what they learned or the lesson they learned was that if we can link Democrats to kind of you know, left policies, then we have a good, we have a chance to make hay politically. And so I think Abbott realized that this was becoming a, 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 a catastrophe for him and a liability and wanted to go on Fox News and test some messaging where he could somehow pin the blame on a kind of progressive left ideal or policy, even though it doesn't actually exist, and then eventually tie his Democratic critics to that uh, when he's up for reelection uh, next fall. And how successful do you think that is a, a tactic when people don't have water or, or heat? I mean, I, I obviously like right now it's, it's kind of beside the point, you know, most people in the state, when you are without power and without water and all that, you're, you're not really worried about politics. I mean, it's cliche to say that, but that's actually the reality. Um, so I don't know if, I don't know how much people who frankly might not even have electricity to get on their phone or on the TV are really, knowing about a lot of this kind of thing. Um, obviously, like in the immediate crisis, he will be judged on the speed uh, at which this crisis as, as, is, is addressed. And then also, um, you know, once people kind of figure out, learn more about why this happened, uh, his role and why will become critical. But I, I'm not, you know, I, I don't necessarily think what he's saying to Fox News is gonna make much of a difference in the state one way or the other. 
you know, beyond the fact, you know, beyond partisan lines, obviously Democrats, you know, will hate anything he does, you know, but <laughs> beyond that, I'm not sure that it's going to be uh, a significant. All right. Uh, so before I uh, leave the uh, Texas politicians too far behind Ted Cruz, please explain yeah. Ted Cruz, if you can, uh, to me, uh, Senator Ted Cruz, is it arrogance? Is it stupidity? Uh, is it just utter indifference yeah. to the plight of mankind? Go ahead. I think with Ted Cruz, it had to be, I don't know, it was temporary insanity, uh, laziness. I don't, you know, it's really hard to say. Sometimes it could be actual family dynamics, you know, pressure, you know, maybe his wife really wanted to go and his wife is a formidable woman in her own right. She's a high powered financial uh, executive. So there might've been some of that, um, you know, maybe it was his idea, but generally speaking, the reason why Ted Cruz wouldn't want to go to Cancun is not because of like the optics or the negative optics, but the missed opportunity. Uh, when you're Ted Cruz, crises like these are, 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 are times when, you know, people who are kind of, relative weak partisans, which is most people, right? They're hard partisans, weaker partisans to, to moderate, to independents. They are less concerned about partisan politics and more concerned about who can help them. Yeah. And for Ted Cruz, someone who has low favorables, a crisis like this is a perfect opportunity to be highly visible, to be on television, and to be looking like you are doing everything in your power to help people. And in reality, there's nothing that someone in his position would be doing in the state that he frankly couldn't do in Cancun. And, and, and practice what a U.S. senator does during a crisis like this is they liaise between local officials and the federal government to ensure that the federal government is providing all resources that it can do and then begin to work on a potential legislative response in terms of, you know, federal uh, declarations of emergencies and other relief packages. You do that on calls. You do that through Zooms. He didn't really need to be in Texas to do it, but by being in Texas, he would have been able to be at every press conference, every briefing. Would he have been valuable in those spaces? Not really. Not to directly on the ground. He's not directing ERCOT's response. He's not directing emergency personnel. But it's a great opportunity to be visible. And for him to actually be willing to pass that up, given the fact that a guy like them is so disliked that he needs those opportunities where he can appear in a positive light, that's what's shocking to me. Um, not that he was like boneheaded in, in terms of, in terms of the optics, but that he just blew a huge opportunity that most of the time your federal politicians love to take in this moment, because again, you get to be in front of the cameras without having the final responsibility because people know that's the, ultimately the local executive that has to make these final calls on these things. Yeah, well put. And uh, that was one of the reasons before you got to Chicago, uh, one of the strengths of mayor Richard M Daly, uh, his, he, he had an instinct, you know, where to show up, where to be to sh to 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 show empathy for the people yeah. of Chicago, even if he wasn't literally in the same boat as them, because he obviously come from a much more privileged position. But he had sense, political sense that he inherited from his father. And by the way, that his brother had it. This is a, a tangent within a tangent at the memorial service for Karen Lewis. That was last week. The great Karen Lewis, the leader of the Chicago Teachers Union. Yeah. Um John Daly, Jason, Commissioner Daly, who was uh, former Daly, uh, Mayor Daly's brother, showed up and 
gave a shout out uh, for Karen Lewis, which caught me off guard. The point is they got sense, political sense, Jason. You know what I'm saying? Which obviously Ted Cruz does not have. He's had it before. I mean, there, I mean, this isn't the first crisis that we've had. And in other crises, he's been more visible. Hurricane Harvey, he was far more visible. I mean, definitely didn't do what he did now. So, I don't That's what I'm saying. Like, he knows the playbook. He's, he's, he's played the right plays in the playbook before. But this one was just really uh, a shocking move here. All right, let's uh, go back to something you said that uh, in the Republican playbook, it's run against socialism. Uh, yeah. So that's essentially essentially what um, Greg Abbott, the uh, governor of Texas, was doing, already preparing for his gubernatorial re-election run in 2022 by running against right. socialism. In your opinion, what's the effective counter tactic for Democrats, sort of like the anti-anti-socialism uh, platform? to fight the run against socialism. Go ahead. I mean, there's two ways to think about it, right? So one way is kind of a movement way, which is we need to fundamentally like reorient people to politics and to reorient their thinking around, you know, what demands they should be making of, of government and what, what, what things they should be expecting and, and continue to kind of expand people's belief in these kind of policies, uh, which is a long-term, you know, project. Um, or, you know, from a straight-up political standpoint or electoral standpoint where you don't have 10, 15 years to kind of move people to the left, the best way may just be to try to define Republicans, uh, to make them, uh, to, 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 to heighten their liabilities, to make them seem further out of the mainstream from the, from the right. Uh, to really, because one of the things that happens is even though Democrats, uh, you know, are getting defined as socialists, and again, these are Democrats who aren't socialists, right? These are Democrats who don't even believe in some of these policies, right? They're like, they're like liberals. They're like, you know, they agree with whatever Joe Biden agrees with, but they don't agree with, you know, the Green New Deal. They don't agree with defunding the police, et cetera. Even they are getting defined by these kind of terms. And so, but when you look at the Republican ads, they're running the pro ads, they're running ads, basically putting themselves in the mainstream saying stuff like we are fighting for education rights, right? Or we're fighting for more funding for education, just very, you know, mundane, you know, innocuous kind of things. They don't talk about how they're trying to defund uh, Planned Parenthood or they're trying to do other things that are outside the political mainstream. Uh, And so we got to do a better job of letting voters know like, hey, you may think these other people, these people are crazy, but the people you're voting for are just as crazy in their own way, and you might need to look again. That may be the first step. And then the other step would be to, uh, you know, if you're a Democrat who, who isn't a socialist, then it would be to try to better, you know, define your brand uh, so that when they call you a socialist, people know your brand well enough to know it's incongruent. I think one of the reasons why Joe Biden was able to stay out of that phrase because he had 40, 50 years of brand identification. So people were like, oh, we know Joe. He, he's no socialist, right? And he had such a, a personal brand around what kind of politics he represented that you couldn't label him in the same way. But you got some no-name person running for Congress. They don't have a brand, so you can, you know, if they can be defined um, more easily. So if you actually are a socialist and you actually want these policies and you're not trying to kind of run away from it, then I think you have to figure out uh, either a long-term organizing strategy like I talked about or 
try to turn out more voters who maybe don't care about that message. Yeah, I think it's a very uh, a long, um, long game uh, issue that you're talking about, because I've, I watched to your point. And I think I may have said this last time on your show. I watched how Kamala Harris in the presidential debate ran away from the Green New Deal when uh, she was challenged. And she rolled her eyes when Mike Pence, uh, quote unquote, accused her of being for the Green New Deal. It's like, oh, my God, isn't that ridiculous? As opposed to embracing the Green New Deal and celebrating it as a, a blueprint for where we should head down the future. She she was like rolling her eyes at it. So, yeah, uh, Jason, this is a struggle for Democrats, no doubt about it. It is a struggle because the media has an incentive to promote these ideas because they're uh, polarizing on both directions. And the media is looking for eyeballs. It's looking for clicks and lifting up people who have new ideas. Radical idea is good for the business, right? So people are going to occupy a disproportionate amount of the mind share uh, within the party. Um, and so when you have people like AOC and other dynamic people rise up, they get a lot of attention regardless of what actual support base they have within the party or within the caucus. At the same time, you have a situation where uh, it's harder to distance yourself from whatever the party's brand is at any given time because we have less ticket splitting than, than you know, every cycle we have less and less ticket splitting. And so down the ballot, you're more likely to be able, you know, you're more likely to be defined by the overarching brand of the party. And if the media is elevating kind of more radical progressive people in the party, and that becomes the brand of the party, despite even if they haven't really co-opted the party, then it becomes a lot harder. Um, and so it is a challenge because these things are relatively new. Before 2018, we weren't even dealing with something called the Green New Deal as something talked about in national media, and now it's come to dominate national media, right? And so, and that's only three years ago, even though it seems like three decades ago. Yeah. And so it's taken a while to figure out how do we navigate this new environment. Yeah, yeah, well put. Uh, all right, let's go talk about defeating Greg uh, Gregory Abbott, the, the current governor of Texas. Uh, is it possible in your humble opinion? And if so, what sort of strategy should the Democrats pursue? Yeah. So I think the, the possibility is, you know, it's pretty much a math problem, right? So what you have to do is you need to get, and I think based on the demographics and the, the changing demographics of the coalitions, you know, Democrats have to feel like there's an opportunity, right? Because as white college educated people, suburbanites move towards the Democratic Party, which happened, um, you know, you saw it in Harris County, you saw it in Dallas and uh, Tarrant County, which is Dallas, Fort Worth. Um, those people are probably more likely to vote in a midterm election than some of the people that powered the Republican uh, statewide numbers in 2020. State Republicans dominated the rural parts of the state, just absolutely dominated both in terms of turnout and margin. But a lot of those people were coming out to vote for Trump. A lot of those less likely rural voters were coming out to vote for Trump. So basically, if you can continue your program in the large counties as Democrats, get, you know, get, get pushed some more people of color into the electorate, hold on to your educated white women and some of the men that you retained, 
and the Republican turnout and in the in the rural areas uh, collapses because Trump's not on the ballot, those margins start to get workable. And then if you have a candidate who can go into those rural areas and win five to ten percent more of the people who do vote by going county by county like Beto did in 2018 and actually talking to those people. Because part of the problem is usually Democrats don't run any campaigns in those rural areas. It's too expensive, right? Like too many media markets. It's too big of a geographical area. You can't tour it on a bus tour. You got to get to Dallas and Houston and all those other places. You just can't do it. But if you figure out a way to do it with all the other things I just said, that's how you beat Greg Abbott in 2022. Mm. Uh, Is there a candidate out there that you think is best positioned to do just that beat Gregory Abbott? Yeah. So, I mean, again, like Beto's the only guy who's ever done anything remotely like it. So if you, if you take what Beto did uh, and then you add on a little bit of stuff that he didn't do in 18, I think you begin to have the foundation of, of what the campaign would look like. Beto, did some really dynamic things as it related to organizing. He did some really interesting things as it relates to like rural voter persuasion. Uh, he found a way as a candidate to connect. He didn't invest the resources that you might otherwise normally do in your large uh, counties, particularly on TV. He didn't necessarily invest a lot of money in communities in terms of, you know, some paid outreach. He did a lot of volunteer outreach. The problem is when you don't do, when you, when you, when you only do volunteer outreach, you're not going to have outreach in areas where people of color are because people of color are not volunteering in that kind of way. They need resources. The communities are different. You need to do paid outreach. So if you layer on what he didn't do with what he did do, that's a platform for a campaign that could challenge him. Uh, I think moving forward long-term, we need to build a deeper bench than just Mm -hmm. Beto. Uh, But for now, he's the guy who's proven that he can not only do the rural voter persuasion, but also and importantly, the fundraising statewide and nationally to then have the resources to fund everything else. All right. Now talk about Beto O'Rourke as a national politician and what people uh, outside of Texas, the view they have them and Beto O'Rourke as he's viewed by Texans, the, where, where the similarities uh, and where the differences go ahead. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, I, I if you judge by his presidential race nationally, he's not perceived well. Right. I mean, he didn't do very well. Um, I mean, and, and that's that's not fair. I'm not going to say he's not perceived well, but obviously a national Democratic electorate was not interested in voting for Beto O'Rourke. And I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe they thought he just wasn't serious enough. Maybe they just thought he didn't have the gravitas. He's too new. And people just wanted to go with the trusted kind of guy, Joe Biden or whatever. So you, you don't want to read too much into why he did so poorly nationally. I think the challenge for him, though, is towards the end of his campaign, he kind of tapped into kind of a different persona than we knew from him, knew from him because of what happened in El Paso with the shooting. And he became really fiery and passionate and really anti-gun and really kind of this guy who would be spouting these profanities and speaking truth to power which was a little bit more um, aggressive than his in-state persona. And what happened when he did that is in the state, it did hurt him a little bit, I think, with some of the moderates that he had been attractive to before. Um, And so I think that's something that he'll have to figure out and solve for is the national campaign made him a little bit more uh, progressive and radical in the state. Uh, And in fact, certain Republicans – we're using him in negative messaging uh, against Democrats, actually tying Democrats to him as being too radical. And that is different than what was happening in 2018. 
Uh, so I think it can be addressed, but it's, 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 it's something new that wasn't the case in 2018. But in the state, you know, I think he's beloved by the Democratic electorate. I think he has a surprising, highly high level of appeal as a white candidate with people of color. Um, and that's especially without making the kind of financial investments that you would normally make. So if you take that goodwill and you put the resource behind it, I think he has a chance to do very well amongst people of color. Uh, and he is a tireless, dynamic retail politician. He has energy. He has engagement. And he's able to communicate people very effectively. Um, I, you know, full disclosure, I know him. You know, I've been in meetings with him. When he came to Chicago for his fundraiser, you know, I, I, he invited me. I went. Um, he, he is dynamic in that, those spaces. And so he can go into places where you don't expect Democrats to get votes. And he can get us some votes. Well, I was a little surprised he went so strong in the anti-gun themes, uh, Jason, where he goes, I I will take your uh, weaponry. I I forget the exact quote, but he was like, literally, I will take it. I'm not, you know, he said that at the Democratic debate. And then the the newly elected uh, far right wing congresswoman from Colorado, uh, what's her name? Uh, Boebert, I think she used that. Like she yeah. used that in her campaign letter. She, she had a confrontation with him. Yeah. And, and I'm like, my first instinct was, isn't that the kiss of death in Texas, which is such a pro gun state? Uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, obviously like, obviously that is tough, right? I think it's tough and I'm not going to say it's not tough. Uh, that'll be an ads, you know, it, it, you know, and, 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 and you'll have to grapple with that and who knows what that'll do. I think the way he's got to, I mean, I'm not, not, let me not say who knows what it'll do. It'll hurt him in certain places for sure. I think the way he's got to mitigate it is he's got to go into those places, uh, where Democrats don't go, where they're going to be very upset about that and try to explain why he said it and try to connect with them on a human level. That's one of the skills and the abilities that he has, and he's going to have to exploit it. Obviously he's from a town, you know, multiple generations from El Paso, there was a major shooting in his hometown. People died. I think even people who don't like his views on guns believe that he was coming from a place of heartfelt emotion. And I think he'll have to tap into that to convince these people uh, that he is not their enemy. Mm-hmm. Right. And that even though he holds these views because of a very traumatic emotional experience, he still doesn't hate them and is still willing to find common ground elsewhere. I think that's what he'll have to do. But yes, it will be, it will be painful I mean, there will there will be some 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 damage to his electoral uh, uh, positioning because of that statement. Yeah, you're right. All right, let's move on uh, from the state of Texas. We're going to yeah. eventually close uh, with some local uh, Chicago conversation. But uh, since you've been on the show, Georgia has emerged as a model for Democrats since the last uh, time you were on the show. I think you predicted it actually the last time you were on the show. Uh, the Democrats swept. Uh, I was a little bit more circumspect. I wish I could have totally predicted but i did say it was possible so it was possible yeah <laughs> it, was possible. <laughs> it was possible uh i, wish I would well, have po- totally called it yeah you should have what the heck that i wouldn't have thrown it up if you got it wrong um but uh uh they swept and uh, yeah. as a result the democrats uh, seized control of the senate so what's the what's the, what's what's the, the the recipe for success that you see uh from the georgia model yeah so so i'm gonna like because it's you, and only because it's you, I'm going to give you what I actually think. Because there's a line that I should be saying that I'm not going to say. Um, 
So it was very interesting. The woman who works with Stacey Abrams, this woman named Lauren Groh, was on Twitter arguing with Nate Cohn from the New York Times, and basically Nate Cohn was saying what the people in Georgia saying is like is fine, but the reality is the story in Georgia is all about demographics. That there were demographic trends in Georgia that don't exist elsewhere in the same way, and that's frankly why they were able to succeed in Georgia, regardless of whatever else things they're saying they did, and that you can't take the Georgia model and just replicate it somewhere else that doesn't have the same demographic um, potentiality, right? Um, there's some truth, I think, to what Nate Cohn is saying, right? Georgia has the highest perf- the percentage of college-educated whites, um, I don't know in the country, but definitely in the South. And it also has the highest percentage of African-Americans. Now, what they were able to do um, is to get their African-American vote share basically commensurate with the African-American participation, the African-American percentage of the population. And that's really where you want to be. If you can get your vote share, minority vote share, commensurate to where you are with population, that's kind of what you would expect. They also had to break records Democrats did in terms of the percentage of white votes they got. Now the discrepancy is, you know, Lauren saying that they needed 30% or that people said they needed 30, but they only got 27%, which, which bears out that it really had more to do with this people of color strategy uh, where people like Nate Cohn are saying, no, it's just the combination of, of, of demographic growth and change and, and the way in which Trump moved college white educated voters to, to Democrats across the country. He also said something interesting, which is that he actually thinks that Texas has moved further to the left in the same time period. It's just that Texas was starting with a better deficit, and that's why they haven't won in Texas. But in terms of raw votes, you've actually had more movement in Texas than you had in Georgia. Here's the one thing that I do think is, that I do believe is, is, is clear from the Georgia thing and my experience in politics is that when you're in a marginal state, um, a state that people don't believe is a battleground state, one of the things that you have to do is you have to get people to believe and you have to get national money to invest in your state. Because even if you have the demographic thing working for you, you still have to execute. You still have to knock on the doors and get the people and bring it home. The demographics by itself won't do it and you know, you, uh, without making sure you, you, you do the work. But the only way to do the work is to get the money, and the only way to get the money is to have somebody who can sell the story and can make the story credible and can let the people nationally know that if you send this money to Georgia, we've built operations and systems to know that you won't waste your money. Yeah. And that, to me, is the main thing that Stacey Abrams did is she built a professionalized infrastructure that any donor or donor advisor across the nation could look at Georgia and say, we can put our money there. We don't know if what they're going to do is going to work. We don't know if the demographics are where they say they are, but we'll put our money there because they've at least got a sophisticated operation that can make good use of it. And that's what they did in Georgia. And they were able to get the resources that you need uh, in order to execute on the demographics. Without the demographics, can you just export that? Probably not. But demographics alone, without that infrastructure, also probably don't get you there either. By the way, th- thank you for uh, letting – that was really well – that was a good riff uh, from start to finish. I was unaware of the Grow versus Nate Cohn uh, Twitter battle. 
I'm uh, Jason. I have to shake my head. If I were Stacey Abrams or Lauren Grow, I'd be so irritated at Nate Cohn. You know, it's sort of like he's going, well, I could have won down in Georgia. It was demographics. All you had to do was put a D on the ballot. You'd win. You hear what I'm saying? Freaking Nate. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) yeah, and you could tell by Lauren Groh's response that she was super irritated with Nate Gone and kind of like attacked him personally. You know, basically saying that the whole data infrastructure in the Democratic Party, which Nate Cohn is a part of, even though he's not technically a partisan, you know, their job is not to be creative. You know, their job is to tell you what you can't do or what's not possible, and you shouldn't think that way, right? She's saying that's why she was saying they told us that we wouldn't have a chance unless we got 30% of the white vote. We got 27%, and we still were able to win. So we were able to do something that their data model said we couldn't, and so you shouldn't just be listening to what they're saying and what is and isn't possible. Um, and so, you know, I understood both, both things. Lauren Grow is trying to give people hope so they begin to invest in the project in which they just executed. Because if people don't believe it's possible, you won't even begin to do and take the kind of steps that you need to, tep- you need to take even before the demographics come to fruition, right? You gotta kind of step out on faith before everything lines up perfectly. Because who knew that Donald Trump was going to be able to help move a bunch of white college-educated people <laughs> yeah. to the Democratic Party. You had to start building before that intervention happened. Yeah. Look, uh, Jason, this has been a dynamic uh, that I've been following in Democratic politics going back uh, to the early 80s. And it, I first observed it in uh, Harold Washington's successful 1983 mayoral campaign. And the issue was, how can Harold Washington get the maximum number of black people to show up to vote? Because he was going to win 99% of the black voters. And so he needed more black people to show up. How could he fire up black people to vote without scaring white people? and igniting a white backlash. And that was Harold's challenge. And he successfully did it in 83 and in 87 before he died. And I just, in many ways, when I'm listening to you talk about this, uh, the Georgia model, I'm I'm having flashbacks to Harold in 1983. Do you follow up? How can Stacey Abrams fire up black people to believe that it's worth their while to show up and vote, that they won't be betrayed once again by you know the Democratic Party, and do it in a way without scaring white people. That's the challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question, and I think there was a lot of perfect storm aspect to it because, and we actually were in a moment where, because of because of all of the the racial justice uh, uh, and the uh, uh, discourse and activism that happened over the summer, white progressives, white liberals, had never been more interested in kind of racial justice issues and and arguments than any time in recent history, right? So you had an, you had a moment where you could lean in to a racial discourse in a way to kind of validate um, yourself with African-American voters uh, without alienating white voters, particularly white voters who are going to vote for Democrats because so many of them had been kind of, I don't want to say radicalized, but at least shaped and influenced and informed uh, by the activity over the summer, right? 
Warnock, the, the, the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, Martin Luther King's Church, had a different resonance uh, with white voters post-George Floyd and post the summer than it did have before that. And so you actually had this unbelievable opportunity to kind of meld both sides of the coalition together in ways that we have rarely been able to do uh, without being more reticent and more hesitant, right? So the Obama model was much more about we got to stay away from these racial issues explicitly and do it more through symbolism and identity um, and kind of generic kind of vagaries around hope, whereas Warnock was able to lean in uh, a lot more, but he was doing it in a moment where that leaning in was actually appreciated not only by black voters but by white voters as well. And so it was like almost this, this really great moment that they were able to capitalize on. And not only that, think about it, in Atlanta, in Georgia, you had the passing of John Lewis, which was another symbol. So you just had all these things that made that dance a lot easier than it normally is. By the way, if I was Nate Cohen, I'd be really annoying, right? I would really try to annoy you. I'd go, oh, that was, come on. It was that dog commercial that he did. That's the only reason he won. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, Jason Lee. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, that was a good commercial. Yeah. It was a good commercial. That's what Nate Cohen emphasized. The dog commercial. Yeah. It, it can't be replicated anywhere. <laughs> Nate Cohen. Ah, uh, Mr. Sunshine himself. Nate Cohen, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> let's be depressed always. All right, uh, let's move. What's that? I was just going to say one more thing. When when Loeffler went after Warnock's sermons, I think that was a real miscalculation as well uh, because she attacked something that is very important to black voters in the South and black voters in Georgia, which is the institution of the black church. Yeah. And it was, that was something that I think backfired. By the way, I don't know. I You probably saw this. David Perdue has already announced he's going to run against Warnock. This is why I say Democrats, please, and, and, and Jason Lee's not guilty of this, but so many of Dems, you guys fall asleep. Please don't fall asleep again. You know, 2022, Warnock's, he's got to run for re-election. Yeah. And yep. please don't fall asleep, Dems in Georgia. You know what I'm saying? Uh, oh, no, already, no. I mean, go ahead. You're right. That It's, it's going to be another war, another battle, and they're not going to have the luxury of half a billion dollars pouring into one battleground state. Yeah. You won't have the same resources because the money will be spread out everywhere. You're in a midterm year with a Democratic president, which is always tough. I mean, it's going to be another war uh, to, to deal with. Now, the good news is if Stacey Abrams decides to run for governor, both of them will be on the ticket and they can kind of share resources and run a coordinated campaign. But, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be hard. Yeah. And the other good news is that the Republican Party has lost its freaking mind. And uh, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, you know, they've been taken over by MAGA. So there's that struggle within the Republican Party. So That's it's. True. There's, there's, I mean, I say good news, but it's kind of scary, Jason. You know what I'm saying? It's not like real good news that lunatics are running the, one of the two major parties in America. Uh, but, uh, all right, let's, uh, let's, let's close it down by coming home to, uh, Chicago. Uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, gave an interview with the New York times, uh, this earlier this week where she essentially, um, proclaimed herself as the great champion of education in the city of Chicago uh, and said only she could have opened the schools. Uh, I believe she also said that she was responsible for the sun rising in the east and setting in the west. Uh, and uh, and then she took a few sh- uh, shots at the Chicago Teachers Union 
Uh, and uh, a couple days later, the New York Post, which is a Rupert Murdoch right wing uh, rag in New York City, came out with an editorial uh, praising Lori Lightfoot for declaring war on the Chicago Teachers Union. So Lori Lightfoot, what, without realizing her, maybe she did realize it, I don't know, uh, was amplifying themes that the Republican Party is putting out there, that teachers unions are responsible for all that is wrong with education and country this day. Please help me on this one, Jason Lee. What sense does it make for any Democratic mayor of any Democratic city to wage war on the teachers union? Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. What sense does it make? I mean, uh, you know, in general, you know, you don't always get to pick your wars, number one. Um, I don't think attacking teachers is a good political strategy in general. I think... The strategy, to the extent that you were going to distill a strategy, politicizing, if you're going to be in conflict with the teachers union, you want to politicize the teachers union and you want to define them in negative ways as unreasonable, intransient, and try to tap into the sentiment of people around the city uh, who may be somewhat sympathetic to teachers in general, and even somewhat sympathetic to some of the claims of the Chicago Teachers Union, but really don't want the Chicago Teachers Union wielding significant power in the city. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think what Lori Lightfoot is trying to do is tap into what she perceives to be some kind of silent majority of people uh, who just don't want the Teachers Union running uh, Chicago. And so... She defines them as an entity that wants to run Chicago, and she is the bulwark against the union running everything uh, and making all the decisions. I think that would be, to the extent that you're going to distill a strategy from it, I think that would be the strategy. But ultimately, I don't believe that the motivation is strategy. I think the strategy is there to dress up a motivation. And what do you think the motivation is? Uh, I think the motivation is just pure, uh, unadulterated uh, hate and hostility towards the Chicago Teachers Union and its leadership. Um, it's, it's, it's disappointing and, and, and frankly unbecoming of someone who would be mayor of the third largest city in the United States to have this kind of personal animus uh, over essentially what are political disagreements. Uh, the mayor doesn't have a great understanding of how labor unions are supposed to work. She has some understanding of how they work in practice, which is not how they're supposed to work. Chicago teachers union is a democratic union that is very responsive to the, the wills, the will and impulse uh, and desires of its membership. Uh, And that creates, uh, you know, and that creates a mandate to fight for things that members want and then to negotiate on behalf of the members and with the members. The mayor believes that every decision that the union makes is solely um, out of the sordid minds of, of, of a Jesse Sharkey or Stacey Davis Gates, uh, and fundamentally it's not true. Uh, the, the, they don't have uh, the, lee, the leeway or to, to, to go 
uh, far outside of what the rank and file members want. And with this relates to the, the reopening of schools, the rank and file membership has been extremely concerned about their safety throughout this process uh, and wanted their leadership to make sure that they did every single thing in their, po- in their power uh, to create the safest uh, environment that could be achieved. Because as far as the rank and file was concerned, their lives were at stake. And even one additional death or illness or severe illness uh, is too many for someone who suffers it. And I think it was hard for people outside of that to understand because we've seen so much suffering throughout this pandemic. So many people have had to work and do things because they, they had no choice because their survival depended on it. And yeah. people have died because they had to go to work through this pandemic. People have died because they had to do things because they had no choice. And the only reason why they were doing it is because they didn't have uh, anybody who could fight for them to have what they need and survive. So they just did it. And we dressed it up in the media as heroism and sacrifice, but that's not what was going on. People were doing what they had to do to survive, not because they wanted to. They didn't have a smile on their face as they were in the hospital getting because they were working and they contracted uh, uh, COVID at their job at, 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 at Mariano's. So a lot of people couldn't understand that the fight you saw with the teachers union is the fight that you would have seen every single other aspect of our society. If people had the ability to do so. Yeah. Wow. Well put. Uh, so let's, let's close with you answering uh, a question based on something you said at the outset of that riff. And that is, uh, if you want to look for a logic, uh, to what mayor Lightfoot is doing, uh, as opposed to just subscribing it to this, uh, animus that she has more against Stacey Davis Gates, in my humble opinion, than Jesse Sharkey, but put that aside. Uh, so if you want to look at it as a tactical strategic, uh, move, as opposed, uh, to just a very personal, a uh, bitter move. Uh, it gets back to that heart that the silent majority of folks in Chicago are uncomfortable with the teachers union, to put it mildly as possible. Do you think that's the case, Jason Lee, that we have a silent majority of citizens in the city of Chicago have uh, a negative attitude towards the Chicago teachers union? No, I, I, I don't. I don't think that. Right. Because I don't think people believe the narrative that the Chicago teachers union wants to take over and run everything. Uh, so because people don't believe that, then no, they don't have the, the, the same, um, you know, attitude when they see the union operating in certain ways, they don't read it as, Oh, these guys are trying to take over and dictate everything that happens in the city. The mayor wants everyone to believe that, which is why she's always misrepresenting and miscategorizing and focusing on, on, on things that would make it seem like the union's doing that. But I don't think people believe that if they did believe it, then yes, I think that people wouldn't want the union to necessarily the union as the union to be in charge of everything because people don't want any entity to be in charge of everything, right? Rightly or wrongly, maybe wrongly, because maybe there are certain entities that if they were in charge, things would be better. But I just think that people in their mind have an idea that no singular interest should have all the power uh, over everything. I just don't think people believe that that's what the Chicago teachers union is about. I think they believe most people believe that Chicago teachers union is about protecting its members uh, who are dedicated public servants and fighting for the public education system at large and the people who uh, uh, are in the public education system 
which is primarily in Chicago, uh, low income, black and brown children and their families. Yeah. Well, I, I would just disagree with you. One uh, aspect uh, in Chicago, there's a mindset that one person should be in charge and that's the mayor. And that was their lo- logic for giving the mayor control of the board of education, uh, the school system. And that's the logic that, uh, uh Mayor Lori Lightford articulates when she says she does not want an elected school board. And I just saw it emerge uh, today in the paper when I was re- reaching or uh, reading comments from Alderman Chris Taliaferro, who is the head of the police committee in Chicago. I think he said something along the lines, Jason, and I'm paraphrasing, the, the, the mayor wears the jacket. That's the line they always use. The mayor wears the jacket. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I, I actually agree with you. I, I, I guess where our two points collide is I think that what people think is that the mayor is in charge and it, as a representative of the people, and she's the bulwark against all these various interests. She's the one that is supposed to navigate and mediate between all these interests such that no one of those other interests yeah. ends up having the power. The power is in the mayor. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's kind of how people imagine it. I don't think, I think with Rom there was enough people who started to think that maybe Rom was more so a representative of one of those interests than he was a bulwark against it. That maybe Rom was actually a spokesman for corporate interest as opposed to someone who would be mediating between different interests. I think you could take the word maybe out of that sentence, Jason, and run with it. Right. Uh, right. Okay. Right, 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 right. Uh, uh, you could probably uh, take the maybe out of that sentence for Rom and maybe Lori Lightfoot as well. All right. Uh, that's about uh, enough of your time as I'm going to take. I know you have a big drive ahead of you, and I want you to drive safely and soundly get to where you're going. You're going down to Texas, your home state, uh, to visit folks. So drive safely and stay safe and look forward to talking to you again real soon. All right, Jason? It was a lot of fun talking to the great Jason Lee. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.